is true. That you know, for this meeting this morning or this afternoon, we pray, Lord, that our church would continue to be able to bless you. And we pray, Lord, for your help to understand your words hope for us. To the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, if you were, I think if you just imagine for a second, you knew exactly when you were going to be robbed, what would you do? Well, I think for most of us, we would call the police and say, all right, this, like, someone's going to come and rob me at this moment. But in the Home Alone movies, and yes, I said movies because I just found out there are six Home Alone movies that have the exact same plot. The exact same plot. The plot of those movies always is, for some reason, this little boy is stuck home alone. His family has left him behind for some reason, and he can't get a hold of his parents, and he doesn't trust the police, and he finds out these robbers are going to break into his home exactly this moment. So he takes the time to set deadly traps at all entrances and throughout the house, and each one of those should kill the man instantly. And yet they get back up again and go to the next one and next one and next one until finally there's like this pivotal moment and like someone comes in and helps him out or, you know, some big ah uh, moment takes place and then they clean up the whole house and everything's better by the next morning. That is every single movie exactly. They do the exact same thing with slightly different features. And I think all of us would do that. Like, we, if we knew when something bad was going to happen, we'd prepare for it. We'd make sure it didn't happen. Um, and we'd, like, work through this. Now, I, I've titled the message, like, When Will the Rapture Happen? From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And the answer, of course, is we don't know. So there you go. You have, you have the whole sermon uh, or lermon right in the beginning. We don't know when the rapture will happen. But what I want us to try and do and what Christians have done for centuries is think and say, okay, but what does the Bible tell us? What are we supposed to learn from these comments? Or are we just supposed to just like, ah, whatever? No, like what makes best sense of the biblical information? and the truth that we have. Now, quick review, um, because we have to remember something about the Thessalonians. Now, these were a people whose discipleship was cut off very early. They were going about, and they were learning the truth of the gospel. But then, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. When the people of Thessalonica could not find them, being Paul. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, this guy, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security for Jason and the rest, they let them go the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So in this very quick departure, Paul is here, he's preaching, he's teaching them, and then all of a sudden, they're like, Paul, you got to get out of here, or you're going to be killed by these mobs. And so he leaves with some trepidation. Oh no, like, are they going to survive as a church? And we read in chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, He's delighted that they're doing well. He says, You became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn from God Turn, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of God. Again, if you look in your Bibles at 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, Paul is praising God for a very specific reason. They are waiting for Jesus. 
they know he's coming back again. They got that down. And last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, we looked at the end of chapter 4, and we talked about that great passage about not wanting to weep like the world does. And one of the things we talked about as we walked through this is they were really worried about the resurrection. Because in the Greek culture, the Greek mind, resurrection is a, is a nasty, gross thing. They didn't believe people came back from the dead, and they didn't believe people lived on in the afterlife. That was a very hard concept for them to understand. They were just like, wait, what? This doesn't make sense to us. But you know what they did understand? Eschatology, the end times. Jesus was coming back. Their issue was they thought that their loved ones had missed Jesus coming back. Like they would never get to see Jesus because they already died and there'd be no re resurrection from the dead. And then like, very different from us. We get confused by eschatology. We're like, what's going on with this? They weren't. And I want to try and say, as we walk through here, that, you know, as Paul reminded them and, and us through them about what the future is. And I, I want to try and make a idea that a premillennialist, pre-tribulationist rapture matches be the best sense of what we do and do not know about the end in the Bible. Big words, I'm going to work through them, okay? But I want to say that a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture makes best sense of what we do and do not know about the end. And it fit with what they were doing. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5, just, just briefly, and then a bunch of other scriptures, talk about some systems, um, and when I come back again next time, we'll dig through some of this a bit more. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 4. Now concerning the times and the season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So what did they know? What the Thessalonians knew? Let's follow the flow of the argument here. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Oh, two words in Greek that are translated into English, which are really hard to translate because the Greek understanding of time is so much different than ours. But, but these two phrases get at it fairly well. Times. When he says the times, it's the course of time, the seconds or days. That's what we think of when we think of time is a progression now, seasons, we often think of the repeating seasons. Fall, winter, spring, summer, and it repeats again, and it goes in an order. But we can also talk about a season of life, right? And that, that's not, that, that could be like, oh yeah, when, when I was single, that was a season of my life. Or, you know, my marriage was a season and time. Right? That we can use that as an indefinite period. And that's closer to the Greek understanding. It basically, it can be a period of accomplishment. For example, in Luke 19, Jesus rebukes the people of Jerusalem because they did not recognize the season of his arrival, the time he was coming. Jesus wept because they should have recognized the unique period of time that it was that their Savior was there. But they, in the Thessalonian church, they understand it. They, they understand the progression of time, and they understand the big picture of what God is doing time. Verse 2, what do they understand? That the day of the Lord will come as a surprise. That's what they understand. They understand this idea that this time is unclear, and the Lord is going to come, and everyone's going to be shocked. Verse 3, 
keep following it. He says that people will say there's peace and security. People are saying nothing bad's going to happen to me. I'm okay. But then there'll be a great shock, just like labor pains. <laughs> Two of my children came like right on time. One of them came a week early. And, and there is nothing like just waking up at 12.30 in the morning and going, oh, I know that sound. I, my wife is going into labor. And suddenly, all right, everything changes, right? That, that's it. Is they're saying, it's unexpected. Here they are, and they are going to be doing something, and then suddenly the whole world will be different. And specifically, when he talks about this day of the Lord, he is building on an Old Testament concept. The apostles were men who read their Bibles. They read the Old Testament. They knew what this was referring to. And it also knows then what they are saved from in verse 9. Go down to verse 9 where it says, For God has, destined, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Well, Christians disagree on what exactly this means to be kept from wrath. Some people say it's just the wrath of hell. You're not going to go to hell. Other people say it's the wrath of people, which is unlikely. Or a lot of people say, no, it's the wrath of God. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, again, another important passage to understand our eschatology Pastor Yuri did a great job walking through the first three chapters of Revelation. You can go on our website and listen to those. But in Revelation 3, verse 10, he says to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. He says that they will not experience this huge issue, this trial that the whole world will experience because of their faithfulness. And I think this is important when we think of eschatology, that it's going to get bad. Like, like so bad that God is going to save people from how bad it's going to get as a reward for their faithfulness. Christians who are serving and loving the Lord, Christians who believe, will be kept from the horrible situation that will take place. It's kind of like a purple heart soldier who goes home from the battle because he's already given his leg for the cause. He can't give anymore. And Christians who daily give their lives to the Lord, who have sacrificed and said, I will follow you, Jesus. They won't experience this great wrath. Some people object and they say, well, but come on, go to the Middle East right now. Go to different countries in the Pacific Islands Christians are suffering for their faith now. Central Asia, Christians are sometimes even killed for their faith. But that, that's man's work. Men are killing Christians for their faith. This wrath here that he's saving them from is the wrath of God, which makes the wrath of man look like little boys throwing mud at each other compared armies will be compared to boys in what they're doing. Nothing. We read in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. You can flip there if you'd like to. But Revelation 6, 1 and 2 says, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Do you know who sends the conqueror into the world? The lamb, Jesus. Like that, that's the world that he is keeping them from. Christians are called to know some parts. The Thessalonians knew some parts. They knew what they were saved from. They knew that there was something coming. Christians are not told to know everything. If you, if you didn't know, a number of years ago, a group of men, including um, John Hagee and Mark Blitz, said that the world will be coming to, the end at, coming to an end in 2015 because of the fourth blood moon. 
you know, you know the blood moons, right? The blood moons, the, the reddish hue of the moon comes in the colors. Oh, man, my, it's not even going to work on for me, is it? Um, and they were saying that the world is coming to an end because of that. Now, here's the problem. So they, let me point it. They pointed out and they said, oh, well, this is because in Acts chapter 20, verse, sorry, Acts 2, verse 20, in Acts 2, verse 20, um, it says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So they said that. And so around 2008, Blitz began predicting that the second coming of Christ would occur in fall 2015, with the seven years of great tribulation beginning in the fall of 2008. He said he had discovered an astronomical pattern that predicted the next tetriad would coincide with the end times. So they said, you can see here, all right, 1, 414, 1014, solar eclipse, of March 2015, Passover on April 2015, and then in September 2015 with the final moon. And so in October, Jesus was going to return. Well, here we are in 2023. What happened in October 2015? Absolutely nothing, <laughs> right? And I think this is the application we should take when we read passages like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We need to have a humble orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means we have a right belief about things. We have to believe what the Bible teaches, and we have to try and our hardest to understand because it's going to be practical. It's going to matter. At the same time, we need to be so very humble about jumping to conclusions. Keeps us from being jerks who are mean to anyone who would dare disagree with us. Another big problem I would encourage us is we got to be careful about newspaper-driven eschatology. It's the kind of eschatology where someone has their Bible in one hand and the newspaper, or more likely a, a, a website, <laughs> in the other. And you're going, all right, let me figure this out. What's the secret code? And so many times people are saying, well, all right, we're in the end times. Yes, COVID was the beginning of the end times because of all these things happened. And three years later... The Lord hasn't returned. And I think one of the dangers can happen is, you know, prophets were stoned for less for making predictions. And we might not be stoned. I don't think anyone's going around stoning Christians. In fact, actually, Hagee continues to just make a mistake and then says again, here's my next prediction. And people keep buying his books. But we do ruin the faith of some, don't we? Like, like the, the scripture is supposed to give us faith because it tells us what is going to happen. And so we have to point people to say, here's what the scripture says, not here's my overly convoluted explanation of it so that they lose their faith when it doesn't happen. We shouldn't predict exactly and say, well, we're in this time period. I can tell you it's coming soon. Well, every Christian has said that to some degree, and it's right. But humility right? Like, be careful. I don't know for sure, but I got a sense. Okay. Because we want people to put their faith in what the Bible says, not in our specific assumptions of what will take place. Make sense? So, trying not to be arrogant, but also trying to learn something about it. Let's talk about some millennial alternatives. What are the different ways that people have said that Scripture's timeline is going to take place? Just to be clear, we're not talking about a millennial hipster, um, some guy wearing cool hats, sitting in a coffee shop. No, this is the millennium, the thousand-year reign in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, says, He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Now, there are four main views on this. This is the Lerman part. We're going to talk a little lecture here. Four main parts, 
more main views, and then I'll throw a fifth one in for free that some people want to do, okay? So let's talk about some of these. First, we have post-millennialism. The key word there being post-after. Post-millennialism. Post-millennialism teaches that Christ will return after a thousand-year reign. So you see there's this time here, this millennium, and then Christ comes. And after that comes the eternal state. Uh, During this millennium, Christ is in heaven above, not on earth, but he exercises his reign through the Spirit and the church preaching the gospel. Sometimes people say the church is actually supposed to rule and control things as well. Um, Classical postmillennialism, and it's the older version, said that the thousand years was still in the future. So they would say we are here in the middle, and this thousand years is still coming, and it's going to be a really good time when um, the gospel will triumph so greatly that the world will be transformed. Society will get better. However, there's a few postmillennialists who believe instead, um, as this chart shows you, that um, this is just kind of a phrase. For, millennium just means the, ch- the church age. See that? Just during now, things are just going to get better and better and better until it gets so good that Jesus is like, all right, fine, I'm coming back now. Uh, this was very popular at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century because it looked like the world was doing really great. Science was improving. They, they, people said, oh, look at the politics. We went from you know, evil despots and kings and dictators to now we have democracy and republic. Um, cultural pursuits, the industrial revolution was making things like crazy. People were living longer. Quality of life was getting better. People were, were healthier. Babies were dying less. Like it looked so good. And then what happened in 1914? World War I. And then what happened in 1939. Well, you could say actually all the whole 30s and just the the Nazi movement taking off, right? And so suddenly people are like, oh, maybe maybe the world isn't getting better. (laughs) Maybe we're getting worse. And, And yet, if you actually, for a lot of people, especially in my generation, this view is becoming popular again because it's seen as a rallying cry because they said, well, this world is really bad, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, In fact, we're here. We're at this beginning part of the church age. And if we work really hard, if we start doing stuff, we're going to change the world. And God is going to be so pleased with us that that people will start being more like Christ. Today, people see this as a rallying cry for cultural engagement to join the culture war, to fight for things, because if we do enough, then one day Jesus will return. Now, I have a number, I've, I've been waiting to use this in a, in a sermon for years. I have a funny little description of a post-millennialist. This is known as the Bringus Utopius. The Bringus Utopius. The post adds, the result of his toll His home is literally a haven from natural decline that is settled in about him. The post-millennialists especially flourished during the Middle Ages and again in the 19th century. During such times, he fed off the good deed dogwoods and the expanding gospel evergreens that were in abundance. However, the great wars have significantly decreased their number. This is from a book that has a series of spoofs and all kinds of theological positions, and it makes little critters here. So there you go, the post-millennialist creature there. Post-millennialism comes after we've done a lot of good things. Secondly, we have ah-millennialism. Key word being ah, which is not. There is no millennial. This is instead referred that Christ will return 
after a symbolic, symbolic thousand years. So this is the church age, but instead of things getting better, they think things will get worse. So there is no literal thousand years. There's just a symbolic name for this period of time that will take place that they would say, when Jesus died and rose again, remember I read in Revelation 20 that Satan would be released after a thousand years? So they say, well, when Jesus rose again, Satan was bound. He's unable to hold the Gentiles in ignorance and gather a coalition against the church, that he is now bound. Um, so I've even heard one pastor talk about how Satan is bound like a dog on a chain, but it's a very long chain, and he can run quite a far distance. They tend to think that the world will get worse before the final judgment, um, and some believe the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament, and so all the physical promises made to Israel are changed to spiritual blessings in the church. So the church receives blessings throughout. You can see there that this tribulation is, well, there's a group of people called the preterists who believe there actually was a physical tribulation time during the, like, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, but then just now we're just kind of in this time, things continue on. Um, and one day Jesus will return and believers will go to glory, unbelievers to heaven, or unbelievers to judgment and hell, but it just will continue on. There's no clear time. Again, using an illustration, this is millennia within ya. The millennia within ya. Perhaps the most feared predator of the all-millennialist is the exacting Ezekiel eagle. The precise bird of prey literally pursues the all-mill from his perch in the distant knolls of the normal interpretation bordering the Old Testament terrain. Explorers who study the records of all-millennials' lofty and elusive past are faced with a formidable task. For as they pour over numerous texts written about him, they must, it seems, read between the lines. See illustration. <laughs> and I think... I, and the one reason I'm not convinced by this position is not so much the New Testament, though I think that uses it correctly. It's the Old Testament. And, and so this funny critique is basically saying, like, you have to read between the lines of the Old Testament passages for you to be able to believe some of these things that they lay out. So instead, I, I want to try and argue for a future millennium that will take place one day. That this time that he's talking about, the day of the Lord, is this future period that will take place one day. One view of this is called historic premillennialism. It's historic because it was very popular for a long time. And they believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. They believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. Some of them see Revelation 6 through 18 as having already happened in church history rather than being a future tribulation. So um, you can see there, they say church age slash tribulation because it's, it's happening at the same time. There isn't a future tribulation. Um, but a key distinction with this group is they do not see a future for national Israel, which will return to following their God, Yahweh. They don't believe in a future for Israel. They think it's just the church. But Christ will come and he will catch up his people. Believers come right away and they will enter into this glorious millennium, right? So this rapture that we're talking about happens at the end of the church age and right away enters into the millennium. No real gap between them. This is just a continual line. I think it's more what I was taught as well, but as I've continued to read and try to understand, there's something called futuristic premillennialism. Futuristic premillennialism, which means God's promises to Abraham and David are coming in the future. 
that's the key distinction between these is it has to do with God's promises to Abraham, to David. Quick outline, that let me explain why. Again, different colors here. So in this view, Christians will have, the, we are in the church age right now, and then comes the rapture. Now you might notice up here, we have, you can't really read it from where you're sitting, apologies, but you have pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, different views on that when this rapture takes place. But they all believe there is a seven-year tribulation followed by Christ's return and then a literal, actual 1,000-year reign of Christ followed by the white throne judgment where believers are rewarded and unbelievers are sent into the lake of fire. This largely comes actually from the book of Daniel, where he prophesies about a 70th week that isn't fulfilled in the New Testament. And yet we, we see statements like the seal, the judgment, the trumpet blast, the bold judgments in Revelation 6 through 18 as a fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. Satan goes into battle in Revelation 20 and enters into utter defeat, being thrown himself into the lake of fire. Can I make fun of us too? What I, well, at least what I believe is the premillennialist. Kind of looks like a squirrel, right? The premillennialist seems intent on attending more heavenly and lofty matters. Because of this trait, some have claimed that he is of little earthly good and that his pie-in-the-sky approach to life is harmful to the theological environment. Others counter that the premillennialist critics may be too harsh. They point to the dry, run-down conditions of these lands and claim that the premillennialist's habitual gaze to heaven is actually a sign that his desolate region is due to be showered with a great rain, so great, in fact, that it will last 1,000 years. <laughs> Again, just it, silly little nature observations that people make. Now, I want to say, I think the pre-millennialist, pre-tribulation one is the best. This one that says, Christ comes at the beginning of the tribulation before this seven-year period begins. Why? A lot of good reasons. But I, I think a key part of it is this chapter. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, <clears throat> we have... The Thessalonians are worried about their lost family members. And they aren't really worried that their loved ones are going to miss the tribulation. They're not worried about like their loved ones being sent to hell or their loved ones being um, like going through judgment. They're worried that their loved ones have missed the rapture. We talked about before that this meet up the meet with the Lord in the air. They're not grieving about appending trials. They're not like, oh no, we're gonna like our family missed it. We're gonna go through judgment. They are worried that they missed this calling up, the rapture. Now, why would they think that if they thought they were entering into the seven-year period? They're grieving over their loved ones. Let me quote from Mike, Michael Vlock, great writer on this. He said, <clears throat> God has promised the church deliverance from divine wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has made a special promise to the church that it will be delivered from the future tribulational wrath of God. So it's best to take this deliverance as a physical removal from the time of divine wrath. He's saying, God says, you're not going to go through God's wrath. So being taken out beforehand, before it gets bad, makes best sense of God's promises. 
four main views. Let, let me throw one other one in there just for free. It's the pan-millennialists. The pan-millennialists. They are the ones that say, I don't know what's going to happen, but God is in charge, so everything is going to pan out. Pan-millennialists. It's all going to pan out. Um, and I understand that view, and, and I think, there's, again, there's a certain humility that goes along with that, and, and that's true, right? God is in charge. It's going to work out. But God decided to tell us things, didn't he? And could, could you imagine if I was walking through with my kids, and I'm like, children, here's what we're going to do. All right, we're going to get in the car, and we're going to go to such and such place, and we're going to go and do this. And they're just going, it's all, Dad, you got it. Okay, we're just going to go wherever you're going to take me. I'm like, but I'm telling you this for a reason, children. Like, don't ignore me. And at times, that could be the attitude. We're like, oh, whatever, God. Or imagine going to a fancy restaurant, and you ask the waiter, all right, uh, hey, what, what dessert goes best with my dinner? Right? And the waiter says, I don't know. They're just all dessert. Like, it's, it's sweet stuff. Who cares? But some of those desserts have nuts in them, and you're highly allergic to nuts. So what happens if that nut dessert comes out? And most importantly, you want to know what goes best with the meal. You want to know not just that it's sweet, but you want to know the best recommendation. What are you going to enjoy best? And fancy restaurants, they always like, oh yeah, let me, let me tell you the best pairing that goes with what you have, right? And I think it's the same way with Scripture, where this exists for a reason. Again, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 through 18. Those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Guys, brothers, sisters, like, if I can encourage you to take anything from this is that I, I know eschatology can be complicated. I, I don't claim to have it all figured out and answer every question. I, I think as Pastor Yuri often says, you know, this is just the, the beginning of the discussion. And I think as we walk through this passage more, we can deal with some more of those questions. But you can think about it. We can look at it together. But I, but I want us to get this idea. This matters because God says that it can be an encouragement to us. God says it helps. Now, let me add one more part of why I think this helps. We want to say, why futuristic premillennialism? Why does this matter? And it is because believing in a future millennium, believing in a coming rapture, says we follow and believe God's promises. I found this chart a few years ago, and I thought it was a helpful image to just describe the belief that the Old Testament follows literal hermeneutics and goes into the new and takes us in our understanding there. Um, hermeneutics, fancy word for how we interpret the Bible, how we understand the promises of God. So let me point this out. So in the Old Testament, right, we have here promises given to Israel, future promises to Israel. And some people want to say, well, those promises are done and gone. We lost them. Or those are actual, should be reinterpreted as spiritual promises. But I think if we understand instead a consistent path that it goes along, along literal hermeneutics to say, no, we still interpret that same way into the New Testament. Do you know what continues on? The promises of the New Testament. So in, in the Bible, it's been well argued that 
the backbone of the Bible is the covenants. The covenants of God, the covenants given to Moses or to, um, to Abraham first, to Abraham and to his children, to Moses, to David, the new covenant given. And covenants are like contracts. They're given in times in the ancient world as one king would require things of his regional rulers. Then he promised to defend them and back them up. But God's promises are different. God's promises don't have conditions. Well, some of them do. Most of the, most of the ones do not. In Genesis chapter 15, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham asks, God, how, how, how do I know this is going to happen? How, how do I know that you will give me this land? So in Genesis 15, verse 12, he says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenzanites, the Cadmonites, to the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gerashites, and the Jebusites. God passes through the covenant making, alone, without Abraham, making a promise that the land will be theirs. Then the land promise can't be ignored. Oh, the conditionality is promised. And, and the Old Testament concludes in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God always keeps his promises. That's why we read in Revelation chapter, or Romans chapter 11, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and all this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Israel's still around. Israel is still going to be part of God's promises. The big reason why I believe and others believe that we should believe in a futuristic premillennialism, a future return, not just of the rapture taking place, but an actual millennium where Israel is a nation again, is because God keeps his promises. And this matters because the devil likes to lie to you about God's promises, doesn't he? You know, he'll say, oh man, like, you know all these stories of God rescuing people? You know, God, God says there's no temptation except that which he gives you an escape from, but you're unique. See, you're, you're the Alamo of God's battles. You need to be lost. You need to fail because there is no way out for you. You are trapped and you are just, just destroyed. But we have to starve that doubt and that lie out with saying God's promises always come about. Eschatology reminds us that God's promises always come about. Can I give a few more applications of things that would matter with it? These different views ask the question, 
will the world get better and better till it's perfect? Like, like I said, some of my peers, other pastors and theologians are saying, no, like we got to fight to make this world better. And, and you know what? That's not what the Bible teaches. Because if it was, it wouldn't be saying, well, peace, peace, everything's good. And then judgment would come. Actually, people would be saying, all right, where, where's, where's the Lord? There's actually a church in another state that's trying, been spending years trying to Christianize one city. They're doing everything they can. They're building big things to try and say, we want to make a Christian city. And they have been spending decades and decades on this. And you know what? I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who, who lives in that city, and he's like, they're not even close. Like, like we are not pessimistic about the future. Actually, we're very optimistic because we think, you know what? No matter how bad it's going to get, it's all going to change in a moment. Like birth pangs coming upon a woman in a moment. Yes, we'll go through a trying seven-year period. Those process of birthing, as you women know, is difficult. And yet after that, we will have the joy of the baby. It also puts our, our focus in the right place. We're not going to hold back the dam of civilization's corruption, but we know that God will win because he will suddenly come back and he will conquer his enemies and he will change everything. But do we know when this is going to take place? Do we know when Jesus is going to return? No. No. So we can never give up. I was actually just talking to some people this morning in the hallway, and we were kind of thinking through this. And you think about it, even the best students, I don't know if some of you were like, just you really loved students and being a student in school. You love studying. You think back to, you know, high school days, maybe college days, and there's this famous thing called senioritis. It's a deadly disease for all graduating students. Senioritis is this great disease that you get to the end and you're like, you see the end is in sight and you just want to give up, right? Even the best ones are like, ah, I can just phone it in. I don't have to work very hard. Like they, they try. And I think a lot of people, if we thought, and, and you can see this, like, well, if we knew the Lord was coming today, then we would just, we would work so hard. We would start knocking on doors. We would get zealous to proclaim the gospel. And yet... Every time someone comes up with a prediction that says Jesus Christ is coming back on October 2015, you know what their followers do? They give up. They sell all their stuff. They go into a hidey hole. And then when it comes and goes, they get angry. There's no zeal to proclaim the truth. There's no delight in what the Lord is doing. We might think we would be better, that we, if we knew the date, that we would just push forward. But in fact, a lot of us, most of us, perhaps all of us, would get Christianitis or, or rapturitis, where we would just wait for it to come and we would give up. Instead, we are to be encouraged, saying, keep going. Yes, things are hard. Yes, things don't seem like they're going the way that they should, but the Lord will come in a moment and we must keep serving him till the end. Again, during this kind of lermon, as we walk through this, try to see that the rapture matters for our hope. We are to know something about the future, but not everything. We, we know a kind of a guideline. Okay, this, this fits in, but we don't know the specifics. There are alternatives, and I would argue that premillennialism matches best what Scripture says, and it matters because of God's judgment. God is going to change things in the future. I, I'm very impressed with my children and their awareness. They, they know the way to church. They, they don't drive anywhere. They're young still, but they know the way that we take to get to church. And if we ever stray from the same path we normally take, they notice it and they comment on it. And it's not just, you know, oh, hey, dad, uh, why are we going this way? But it's always, dad, do you know where you're going? 
Uh, um, dad, are, are you sure that you know where you're going, dad? Because this is not the way we go to church. And I'll say, okay, we're going this way. And they'll question, but, but dad, where, where are you going? It, it doesn't look like we're going to get there going this way. And I would argue in the same way, we as Christians go to God and we're like, God, what, what, what's the path you're taking? This doesn't seem to end up in the where you're saying is going to do. But we have to know the end and not always the individual steps along the way. We, we know some big sights and we're supposed to notice them because that's the path he takes. Right? But a humility comes in of saying, Lord, all right, but how are you going to get us there? And trust him. And realize, saying, you know, the fact is, I, I do see some markers. I do see some landscape. Yes. Oh, you know what? He's, yeah, this, we're going there. We are. So when you read your Bible about eschatology, notice those landmarks. Notice the big picture things that make sense. Like, hey, the world is supposed to get worse. Don't be surprised. Yes, like the, there are going to be rumors of wars coming. Yes, there are going to be lots of problems. There are going to be some good days and some bad days. There are going to be people who say, ah, Jesus is going to return. Jesus says all these things. And we're like, yes, this makes sense. This fits. I still don't see how I can get there, Jesus. But I trust you by what you say, we are going to end up at that place. That has to be our prayer. That has to be our trust. And the Bible should encourage us in that. Let me pray. God, allow us to know what we should and be humble with what we do not. We, we thank you, Lord, that your word is given to us. And I'll admit at times it's confusing and hard. Don't understand it, Father. Or we do, and then we have another question. So Lord, we pray as we take those questions to you that you would encourage our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you have given us. We pray, Lord, that our fellowship and encouragement might remind us more ways why we can trust you. And we ask, Lord, this to the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.